Welcome to Square Root Justice, hosted by Rita La Therese. Where we will shed light, give voice, and invoke positive thought and reform on current and social justice inequalities. Humanity, Jesus, justice. Humanity, Jesus, justice. to Square Root Justice with Rita LaTerese. I am your host, Rita LaTerese. You know, we're just getting into summer underway and, you know, certain parts of the country is hot, other parts of the country, air pollution. And, you know, it's a lot been going on. But I tell you, um, the end of June came in with the bang. And I say that because of current events that's going on. But, you know, what I really wanted to, excuse me, um, talk about was we just had like three major Supreme Court ruling um, hearings that came out at the end of June, like June 29th and the 30th. And that's when I said the summer's come in with the bang. That's part of the bang. But, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this and I, you know, said, you know, we're just gotten over COVID and really we still aren't truly out or over COVID. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, pass from that. Um, a lot of people are still having complications, um, which they're called long haulers. And let me be clear, I don't want to make um, light of anyone's medical situation. That is not what I'm talking about. That is not my intention. But I do want to bring out and point out some similarities. Um, dealing with COVID, you know, individuals that were impacted by COVID, and are still suffering from complications, you know, they're called long haulers. And so after hearing the Supreme Court, you know, rulings and doing some research and reading and listening, I wanted to come to you with the long hauler effect of the U.S. Supreme Court ruling concerning affirmative action. The long hauler effect of the U.S. Supreme Court ruling concerning affirmative action. So we know about covid some of us may have, some may not have heard about a long hauler. But when you look at long hauler in the medical sense, it's a person who experiences one or more long-term effects following initial improvement or recovery from a serious illness such as COVID-19. That's according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary. And we know that COVID-19 infected and affected people in the worst way. The rulings from the Supreme Court, these current rulings that came out, will do the same, and here's why. According to Dr. Gregory Poland of the Mayo Clinic, um, he stated the emergence or the idea of COVID-19 long haulers, which is a term used to describe people who develop long-term and ongoing complications. The ruling concerning affirmative action will have long-term complications. And I will get into that and explain further. So I researched the um, Supreme Court rulings and the case that came about and how um, affirmative action concerning academics and uh, college 
admissions. It was Students for Fair Admissions Incorporated versus the president and fellows of Harvard College. So the two academic institutions at the forefront or at the center of this Supreme Court ruling was Harvard College and the University of North Carolina, or otherwise known as UNC. And they are two of the oldest institutions in higher learning in the United States. And um, I did my research on the Supreme Court, um, SupremeCourt.gov website, I believe it was, and reading the, um, the opinions and things of that nature concerning this case. And I jotted down some notes, so you see me looking up, looking down. But concerning Harvard College and UNC that are um, two of the oldest institutions of higher learning in the United States, according uh, to this Supreme Court brief. And it went on to state that every year, tens of thousands of students apply to each school. Many fewer are admitted. Both Harvard and UNC employ a highly selective admissions process to make their decisions. Admissions to each school can depend on a student's grades, recommendation letters, or extracurricular involvement. It can also depend on their race. The question presented is whether the admissions systems used by Harvard College and UNC are lawful under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So we're going to get into the 14th Amendment in a minute. We're going to get into the Equal Protection Clause. I'm no attorney. I'm not in law school. I'm not a law school student. I just research and read. And based off of my prior experience and my previous career. So Harvard admissions, the, the key focus point for Harvard admissions is what I found interesting. It says one of the final steps of the application process is that it discusses the relative breakdown of applicants by race. The goal of the process, according to Harvard's director of admissions, is ensuring there is no, quote, dramatic drop-off in minority admissions from the prior class. In Harvard admissions process, quote, race is a determinative tip for a significant percentage of all admitted African-American and Hispanic applicants, end quote. On the other hand, dealing with UNC admissions, the key focus point here is this, quote, Every application is reviewed first by an admissions office reader who assigns a numerical rating to each of several categories. Readers are required to consider the applicant's race as a factor in their review. So UNC admissions process is right from the get-go when they have their screener looking at college um, students' applications, they are looking at and determining race right at the forefront of their admission process through their reviewer. Readers then make a written recommendation on each assigned application, and they may provide an applicant a substantial quote plus, end quote, depending on the applicant's race. At this stage, most recommendations are provisionally final. A committee of experienced staff members then conducts, quote, a school group review, end quote, of every initial decision made by a reader and either approves or rejects the recommendation. In making those decisions, the committee may consider the applicant's race. So these are the, um, the matters, 
that's before us. And, and I chose to look at those key points for specific reasons in dealing with the affirmative action. So when the when the petitioner or the plaintiff, the petitioners, the students for fair admissions, which is a nonprofit organization, who stated their purpose is to quote defend human and civil rights secured by law, including the rights of individuals to equal protection under the law. So now we're talking about Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So let's go into it. What is the 14th Amendment? The 14th Amendment was proposed by Congress and ratified by the states in the wake of the Civil War, 1861 through 1865. The 14th Amendment provides that no state shall, quote, deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. When we look at the Equal Protection Clause, it states that the law in the states shall be the same for the black as for the white, that all persons, whether colored or white, shall stand equal before the laws of the states. Hmm. It's okay. I thought about that. We're talking about separate but equal. And I come to the conclusion we are separate but not equal. And you say, May, you, you have that the wrong way, separate but equal. I'll explain in a minute. Stay with me. The separate but equal doctrine came out of Plessy versus Ferguson. And according to Cornell Law School's Legal Information Institute, the phrase separate but equal refers to the infamously racist decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in Plessy versus Ferguson, which occurred in 1896, that allowed the use of segregation laws by states and local governments. The phrase separate but equal comes from part of the court's decision that argued separate rail cars for whites and African-Americans were equal, at least as required by the Equal Protection Clause. That was shut down when Brown versus Board of Education came along which gave the right to public the right to public education must be made available on equal terms to all. So when we look at affirmative action, I understand the arguments both ways. I don't agree with the ruling, but it's just my opinion and my belief, but I understand it. And so when the Supreme Court make their rulings, they are looking at case law. And I'll, you know, go into case law a little bit in a minute or two. But case law are cases or precedents that have come before the Supreme Court in which they use that as a legal guidance to say, oh, we this has been ruled on and this is the material matter at hand that's a question. So they use case law. But what I want us to understand and look at and uh, possibly take a different perspective on is that when this ruling came out and they were using affirmative action, talking, speaking of the Equal Protection Clause, 
Let me take you back. We talk about the 1896 and then Brown versus Board of Education, I believe 1950s. And don't quote me, I should have checked it. I didn't, I apologize. But Brown versus Board of Education in the 1950s for everyone to have a um, right to public education, that it be made available to all. But when this affirmative action, when they brought this suit, the case law that they're using and the precedence, it goes back. So as African-Americans, we made strides and we made successes and gains with Brown versus Board of Education. But the case law that we're standing on is older. So, and I feel, and I could be wrong, I feel that when the Supreme Court came out with this ruling at issue, they chose to look at the Equal Protection Clause as stated in the arguments in the brief or the write-up. And so if you really look at that, it doesn't, you know, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, the striking down of Plessy versus uh, Ferguson, the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, it does not take into consideration or factors about lived experiences, the discriminations that are at hand or that pretty much were at hand then. So we are standing on old case law. I believe there is no totality of the circumstances in dealing with the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause. It was, we used it to make strides to get to the Board of Education, to get to the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, we are standing on old case law that has not come up. I don't want to say that hasn't come up to speed because that's not the correct way to say it. It's how I'm my perspective and where I'm looking at it. But as it states, it's about equal protection for all. And let me just go back to the Equal Protection Clause. It states that the law in the states shall be the same for the black as for the white, that all persons, whether colored or white, shall stand equal before the laws of the state. So if you read it at hand, that's what it says. And we used the Equal Protection Clause and we got Brown versus Board of Education. I say we, I'm talking about African-Americans, but we have a long way to go. So just standing on that precedent of the Equal Protection Clause, I don't think sometimes we realize that the precedents that we use or that we are um, obligated to use legally, meaning that when we argue, we protest, we fight, we're standing for you know justice for what is right, what is fair. But when you look at that clause, it's like it's black and white. It doesn't talk about the lived experiences. It doesn't talk about the struggles of blacks. It doesn't talk about the killings or, you know, the slavery that it was endured. It doesn't talk about reparations or making someone whole. I believe the Supreme Court, they chose to look at it just for that with no outside influence, no other pieces to put the whole puzzle together is strictly focused on that. And when you look at that, I un I can understand it. I don't agree with it, but this is why I'm talking and say case law is important. Precedence is important. 
And yes, you know, we talk about uh, the separable equal. And, you know, you say, what is affirmative action? It's defined as a set of procedures designed to eliminate unlawful discrimination among applicants and remedy the results of such prior discrimination and prevent such discrimination in the future. That's what affirmative action is. But do we have any case law or any precedent to stand on to give a legal footing or an argument that can propel us forward in society? I'm not a lawyer. I don't know of any. I'm just looking at it for what it is and trying to offer a different perspective and why we need to look at things different. No, I don't agree with the ruling. But there is cited, this is the law that they use in the case precedent. And when you talk about case law, coming from Cornell University again, Case law is law that is based on judicial decisions rather than law based on constitutions, statutes, or regulations. Case law concerns unique disputes resolved by courts using the concrete facts of a case. By contrast, statutes and regulations are written abstractly. Case law refers to the collection of precedents and authorities set by previous judicial decisions on a particular issue or topic. And that is what I was talking about. Precedents and authority set by previous judicial decisions on a particular issue or topic. When they brought this argument and it was appealed, then went to the Supreme Court, they decided to use the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause. So I said, you know, that was interesting because there were a lot of, um, there were like three decisions that came down within two days. And I said, hmm. So you have a woman, the other, you know, uh, Supreme Court case, I think is LOC 366 LOC or something out of Colorado. That stated what she intends to do is set up um, website designs for couples and their weddings and everything. But to my understanding, from my reading, it hadn't been done. So if we're talking about precedence, I never knew the Supreme Court would take up and make rulings on cases or events that not, had not happened or that someone could even take it to the Supreme Court to that level based on their intention or what they plan to do. But that is what happened in that case. From my reading, there was no same-sex couple or anyone that came to her and asked for her to do a website for them. And, and she took it based off the First Amendment, freedom of speech. But I'm not going into that depth. What I want to look at is the precedent of the case law. To my knowledge, there is no case law concerning that. There was no precedent. And why is that important? Because that case just became case law for future cases that are to come concerning First Amendment speech and LGBTQ plus different cases. That is my focus, is that that case became case law and it will and can potentially set the standard for cases coming forward in a relationship to that dealing with First Amendment. That is crucial. That's huge because 
when you look at precedent, these are cases of things that have happened that hadn't even happened. She strategized and got ahead of because she didn't want her belief or her freedom, her First Amendment right, freedom of speech to be trampled based off of her religious belief. My stake in this and how I look at it is that the Supreme Court ruled on something that had not even occurred. I didn't know it could occur. Like I say, I'm not an attorney. I don't profess to be an attorney. I am just reading and I find it interesting that that is a perspective worth looking at and talking about because that now stands as case law for years to come, for generations to come. To our knowledge, no other case had gone to the Supreme Court like that. And I, I say it was strategized because it went through the Colorado Appeal Court and she, she lost there through the state of Colorado. And then, which I believe is the um, 10th Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. And it went to the Supreme Court. No precedent cases beforehand. No action was taken. No website was made for any same-sex couple or anything like that. So I look at it strictly from the standpoint as this is now case law. When you have future cases to come, that will be the case and the arguments that they will base their decisions off of potentially. And that's huge. Because in all my years of law enforcement, case law are things that happen. And that's what you go off of and that's what you train on. So in looking at this with case law and seeing how, you know, we've been impacted by COVID and I'm calling this the long hauler effect because we've made so many strides and so many advances forward that now I don't want to speak it that we're going back. I don't want to speak that. But I see just based off of the decisions, events that have happened, we had an insurrection in our country that should have never happened. The rise of hate groups and of violence is not about Republican. It's not about Democrat. You vote whichever way you want. You affiliate whichever way you want. I just want people to realize and say, everyone is human. And I will continue to say it's humanity. Look at people as humans. We have the Civil War, the Union versus the Confederacy. Now I look at it as it's the Democrats versus Republican. And what's the root of it? The common denominator? Humans. People. Individuals. And yeah, don't come say, well, you know, blacks were, you know, started, they were Republicans when they were slaves. Yes, but times change. Who you vote for is who you vote for. Please treat everyone like humans. We had an insurrection. It shouldn't have never happened. And it seemed like, you know, the rise of the hate groups, the politicians that's not standing in the best interest of all human beings. It seems like we're going backwards instead of moving forward, which we should be doing as a nation. I don't see it.
I don't see it. It's sad. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who doesn't see it. But if instead of moving forward, certain individuals want to take us backwards. Love each other. Love everyone. And there's talk about reparations. And I'm going to tie all of this in together. And, you know, reparations for African-Americans dealing, you know, our ancestors been through the slavery. They've stood, they fight, they fought, they've died, they've shed blood. Just to have a equal footing, because we are living on the uneven ground. And I call it the uneven ground because in literally every way you look at it is the uneven ground that we're living on, we're standing on, we're marching on, we're advocating on. It's the uneven ground, literally. The earth itself and people and as us trying to move forward and advance things just for everyone to be treated as human beings. I don't want to see say treated fairly. Treat everyone as human beings. I'm not going to say uh, treat someone the way you would like to be treated. I don't say that anymore because you may want to be treated like an a-hole. And you may not have common or moral ethics or whatever. So, no, don't treat me like you want to be treated. Treat me and treat everyone as humans and with love. And when you talk about reparations for African-Americans, the descendants of slaves, let me just give you a couple things. Thank you, um, Governor Gavin Newsom and the state of California representatives for passing such law as one of the first, if not the first state, to start considering paying African-American descendants of slaves and those that have lost their land, paying them reparations. And it's not hard. The United States government wrote the framework for Holocaust reparations. It was drafted by the United States. And according to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, the Obama administration has awarded 12 million or that administration awarded 12 million for assistance to Holocaust survivors. It can be done. The allocation from the Department of Health and Human Services to the Jewish Federations of North America to be dispersed over five years is part of an initiative launched in late 2013 by Vice President Joe Biden to address the needs of survivors in the United States, a quarter of whom live below the poverty line. We have a lot of African-Americans living below the poverty line. We have a lot of humans or individuals in the in the society in the U.S. living below the poverty poverty line. Reparations can be done, and it needs to be done. When you think about the Japanese internment camps, they receive restorations. Our legislation admitted that the government actions were based on race, prejudice, war, hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. By 1992, the U.S. government eventually dispersed $3.96 billion. In 2022, 
and reparations to 82,219 Japanese Americans who had been incarcerated. Let me go back. By 1992, the U.S. government eventually dispersed correction more than 1.6 billion, which is the equivalent to 3.96 billion in 2022. It can be done. We talked about case law. We talked about precedents. We cannot think that hate groups, different, I don't even want to say the word. If we want to move forward together collectively, we first have to go back and right the wrongs. The Japanese have been paid reparations. The Jewish Holocaust have been paid reparations. African-Americans have not been paid any reparations as descendants of slave owners or, I mean, descendants of slaves. We have to go back and make that right first to start trying to rebuild history. We're continuing as a society trying to advance and build, but we don't have a solid foundation. The solid foundation comes with going back making the reparations, making people whole so that they can have a footing. And then we build off of that. We can't continue to make advancements and try to move forward collectively. And I think the allies that stand with us African-Americans in fighting for equal justice and equality, but we have to go back. And it starts with the reparations. It starts with more than acknowledging that we have Black History Month, more than we have Juneteenth. It's, it's more than that. The foundation must be built and the foundation starts with reparations and making people whole so that we as African-Americans are not living and continuing to live in poverty. Not all, but some. So if we can't do that, we're always going to be on the uneven ground, except when we're on the uneven ground, we're tilting and we're wobbling and we're moving. And that's sort of how we are now with the decisions that just came out, especially dealing with affirmative action. It has opened up the door to a lot. I just say as we move forward, and I'm going to say collectively because I'm going to speak it into existence. As we move forward collectively to stride for better, to stand together in cohesion for justice, for equality, for freedoms, we must build a foundation. And the foundation start with reparations. That is a true acknowledgement of more than just having, you know, a holiday for Juneteenth or a Black History Month. It was done for the Holocaust survivors. Great. It was done for the Chinese internment, victims of the Chinese internment camps. Great. Let's get it done for descendants of slaves. That will be great. And let's march on from there.
So when you think about the Supreme Court rulings, don't forget about case law. Case law is their foundation. And we're fighting for equality and justice on case law that hasn't advanced. Keep that in, the, in your mind as we move forward. Thank you, allies, for standing with us. But let's remember case law, precedence, and what it means as we stand united. Thanks for listening to Square Root Justice. You can catch me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok by the handle at S-Q-R-O-O-T Justice, at Square Root Justice. You can always find me on YouTube as well. Thanks for tuning in to Square Root Justice. I'll see you on the next episode. Stay blessed. Square Root Justice, Square Root Justice.